Welcome to the Outdoor Country Talk Podcast, hosted by Jacob Poole and Jeremy Shaw, where we bring country living and the great outdoors together. Welcome back to another episode of Outdoor Country Talk. Jacob and Jeremy. Jake, man, this weather's got me thinking we're back back at duck season, man. Got a little front done pushed through, kind of like a little chilling air, and ain't nothing to hunt. Well, you know, I had... Uh... I had put all duck gear up and all deer stuff up and had started breaking out turkey calls and wiggling around and starting to fiddle with a little bit of stuff in this cold snap like today. It's uh, like, well, am I in the wrong part or? <laughs> I know it. I know it. It pushed through and man, I'm like, I'm like almost depressed. Don't even, can't even go hunt anything, just sitting around, but part of it. Well, I saw one of our one of our local loggers here out of the Liberty area had uh, posted a thing on Facebook earlier today. He had made a mud checker. Uh, basically, it looked like a piece of rebar with a T on top. I so you saw could, that. I saw that. And I told him, I said, you may not need a mud checker. You may need a boat paddle to see how deep the water is before you get to the mud if it don't quit raining around here. So. Oh, man, I know it. I know we've – I don't know if there's a podcast we hadn't started by talking about the weather but we'll watch angel um, yeah i know he might well stay consistent right but you know i'm i was making my way up to the middle part of the state today and saw that big big black river and i have never seen it as high as it was earlier today it was man it was some water well it you, was some water i saw on the online today where they've already started evacuating some of the areas up there due to flooding I'm yeah, hoping I saw that on the Pearl River, I think it was. Is, man, it's, hopefully we're not going to have a, a redo of last year because I know a lot of a lot of good folks up there had a hard time last year. Well, if it ain't a redo, it may be worse. From I mean, Mississippi River is projected another three feet I saw in Vicksburg, so it's uh, it's not, not looking promising, to say the least. I know I was wanting to get up there around the camp and throw some trot lines out when weather warms up, but Heck, I may be able to do that in the yard at the camp if it keeps going. Well, now, you know, we don't ever get into politics on here, and I'm not going to uh, start on today's show, but I did see an article the other day where there has been a suit set up by the folks in the Delta to try to get some compensation back from income loss last year or damages. I, I want to say the number I saw was a billion-dollar suit. I saw that. I know last year that uh, Mississippi State um, did a survey, and um, through you know, if you lived or worked or hunted or something like that, if you're affiliated with the uh, with the backwater flood from last year, you know they sent a survey. And I actually got the survey. I don't know how I got it, but um, or maybe did it on Facebook, something like that. But you know, it was, it was accounting for for loss of you know commute loss, you know uh, additional dollars spent on commuting around where, you know, backwater was impacted or, you know, strictly income or, you know, extra living expenses and stuff like that. And it was a, I can't, I can't quote the numbers on it, but it was an astronomical amount of how, you know, those people were impacted. It was, it was crazy. Well, and then you'd start looking at homes that were lost. You look at, you know, equipment, you look at, you know, crops on the ground, um, 
and then and that's just talking about the farmers you you go into some of oh, the towns yeah. where people were devastated you've got loss of business you've got all you know uh the little lady not far from the camp down there uh has a little cook shack uh yeah janae's uh, janae now she said she did you know she was able to stay open but she said i stayed open but there was nobody here so no she actually shut down for a few months and was and opened back up about for hunting season so she she did shut down for a little bit, but I mean it wasn't wasn't a permanent close. But you know the Onward store right there on Highway sixty one um, shut their doors, and what I've heard it was contributed to to the lack of business during the flood. Could keep the doors open. So uh, uh, it was a lot of water up there. I know the few times I was up there last year, it was a it was amazing at how much water was up there and how well you know a couple times that we were up there hunting this year that I was able to come up and hunt with y'all seeing the water level lying on the trees or the yeah i mean yeah. It, it was you know a good four or five feet in some places and even higher were from where we were at and the water was up when we were in there so yeah we were boating most places and still you had another four or five feet of a water level that was you know sustained for you know several months i would be willing to bet and and even you know i actually learned something from old buddy drew summers um this, uh, Are you actually we going to give him credit for that on air? I'm going to give him a little bit of credit for it because we were hunting. I can't remember where we were hunting at this year. And there was like some, uh, I mean, you know, for a, a lack or ignorant term, it looked like hair growing on some trees. And I can't remember what kind of trees it was, but it was about, you know, head level or, or a little bit higher. He said, you know what that is right there? I said, oh, man, I, I really don't. I don't know what that is. I mean, I'm looking around the trees and seeing it. He said the water was up that long that that tree started sprouting roots up right at the water level to uh, to be able to survive. And I said, wow, be dang, I did not know that. And then after, you know, him telling me, it was back, you know, early season whenever he was telling me that, and more places I hunted, um, I started, you know, being being more, it was more recognizable to me then once I knew what it was. And it was, it was pretty crazy to think that a tree had, stayed underwater that long and i guess started using some survival instincts that they have and it's crazy but i'm afraid it's gonna be like that again all right i'm gonna ask this real quick and we'll move forward but uh did you google it to see if drew was actually right or not did you I did fact not. check he is, he is a mississippi state graduate so i'm gonna i'm gonna take his word for it i mean i'm not gonna second guess him <laughs> I'd have double checked him in a heartbeat. Uh, <laughs> is that is that because you're a Mississippi State graduate? You would you, you would say yes. Yes, uh, and since my degree is in forestry, I, I do believe he is correct in that. But I would have had to double check it. I, I would have wanted to know exactly what they were called. I've got fibrous uh, secondary fibrous roots in my head, but I'm not sure. I, that's probably not. Man, that close. sounds that sounds great to me. Yeah, I mean, you throw that technical in there, you don't actually have to be right. You just sound right. Yeah, it sounds great. Sounds great. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, we got a we got a guy that can talk some hunting, not so much in the Mississippi Delta, just a hair north of that today with us. We do. We do. Uh it, this is a a fine opportunity to to get up with a local guy here who has a lot of local connections that actually has an opportunity to hunt way away. So uh today we have Mr. Russ Carew. Russ, are you there? I am here. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. I appreciate it. Man, I have been wanting to get back up with you ever since football season. You first told me about this. I was like, we have got to get him on here and and find out more about this 
this opportunity that he has. Well, it is just that. It's an opportunity to to hunt uh, what we all know, what we've all heard all of our lives is, is some of the biggest whitetails uh, on earth. And, and that's the truth. You know, Saskatchewan, uh, I guess, has the environment uh, that has created some of the biggest whitetails that people have ever taken, body-wise and, and rack-wise, too. Uh, so, yes, it is a great opportunity for me to go up there every year and for, for anybody else who wants to go up there and experience uh, just what northern exposure is really all about. So, Rush, y'all, y'all have it's a I guess it's a it's a guide service in Saskatchewan. That's correct. That's correct. Um, my dad is the outfitter, and uh, there are a group of us. There are ten guys. Uh, I got to be a part of it back in 2007 is when I came into it. They've been into it uh, a good bit longer than me. I want to say 23 years. Some, wow. Somewhere in that neighborhood uh, that they've been doing it. But I got into it back in 07. My first hunt was actually a, a black bear hunt, but we'll get into that in a, a little bit. But, um, yeah, so it's been going on for about 20, 23 years, something like that. Dad's the outfitter, and we do have guides that live up there and run the operation for us. Uh, they're responsible for, you know, getting the hunters to and from the stands uh, the baiting of the stands, whether it be a bear hunt or a whitetail hunt, uh, you, you know, you're brought in all the way to the stand, uh, or or the or the pop up line, whatever it may be. We take a lot of bow hunters up there as well, uh, and you got the option on all the stands that we have of doing a pop up blind or doing a ladder stand. Uh, some of the stands, I mean, some of the the, the baits actually have boxes that we have out there. Um, and, and a lot of the guys like the boxes cause you can take those propane tanks with you. And, uh, it, it gets cold, uh, towards the end of the season, November, you'll see some sub zero temperatures. Um, uh, we've seen, I think dad's seen minus 30 in high winds and, and I've never experienced that. Thank goodness. But so it does, it does get cold, uh, real cold up there. So you got to dress appropriately. But, yeah, we have the guides up there that do all that for us. And um, a young lady that cooks uh, breakfast, uh, packs a lunch for you, and come back home uh, after the hunts are over during the day, and there's a big spread on the table at night. And uh, it's a great experience. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not a five-star place, but it's a place where you can go up there and affordably uh, hunt some of the biggest whitetails on earth. That sounds awesome. Now, how do you – now, the name of, name of your, your organization is Whitetail International, correct? That's correct, yes. And, and uh, you, can look at, you can look up uh, whitetailinternational.com, uh, but it's whitetail, I-N-T-L.com, and um, there is a, a wealth of information on there, not, not only how to contact us, but pictures of people – who, who have uh, hunters who have gone up there and and taken um, you know deer of a lifetime you know you know from from 150s to 190s to to whatever you know and these deer are averaging somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 to 320 pounds which is a different animal than what we have down here in the south Slightly. I think they're a different gene uh, of animal their hair is twice as long and that's probably from 
um, you know, the, we- the the winters that they have to endure up there. Um, but the website is very informative. Uh, what to bring, what to wear. Um, and there's a long list of those ty- kinds of items. And, and of course, anybody can feel free to contact me uh, or dad. And uh, we're happy to, to, to bounce off any any of our experience that we've had in the past to help hunters make a, a, a smoother uh, transit from the U.S. and, and to Canada and uh, try to be successful in their hunts. Well, Russ, walk me through this. All right, I'm leaving, sure. I'm leaving Liberty. I'm going to New Orleans. I fly yep. into where? You're going to fly your uh, – every year I take a, a, a stop to um, uh, Saskatoon, Canada, Saskatchewan. And then from there, uh, we all meet up together who are all coming from different places, uh, and we rent a vehicle together, uh, usually a truck or an expedition or a Suburban or something like that. You're going to need something like that to hold all the gear. And then we'll drive three and a half hours northeast from Saskatoon to uh, Hudson Bay. And Hudson Bay is uh, a small community uh, that borders um, the Canadian provincial forest. And I think the whole town really is employed by Weyerhaeuser uh, and, and have been for a long time. So that's really all they do up there um, is is farm those provincial forests. Uh, they are that big. Uh, our lease is uh, 86,000 acres. And uh, we've got a cabin that sleeps 10 really comfortably. And um, uh, we got, you know, I think the highlight of the whole trip really is is the food that we get to eat. It's elk every night or it's <laughs> moose the next night or, you know, bison or, or it's just a, uh, it's really a, a, really a fun experience, especially if you get to go with some of your boys that you, that you love or family that you love. And it's um, oh, a lifetime experience. It sounds like now the the menu that you're talking about there. Yeah. yeah. Now, are y'all allowed to hunt all of that or do you buy it local or uh they it comes from local. Uh as a non resident, uh we're allowed to hunt whitetail and black bear only. Um we are not uh allowed to um harvest um any wolves or moose or elk um and of course they have muleys up there too but there's really none in in that provincial forest area they're a good bit south of us so like in saskatoon uh when you're driving out of saskatoon watch looking at all those plains uh flat plains you think greenville and all those places down that way in the delta are flat let me tell you something, Saskatoon is as flat as it gets. You can see for forever, and they got the blackest soil I've ever seen. It's amazing, probably because of the short growing season. But you'll see muleys on the side of the road there. Um, but we don't have that up north. But whitetail, black bear is what we're allowed to hunt. Russ, why is it that, you know, I would, I would think that a, a wolf population, you know, would probably be, you know, predators to other, some of the other game animals. Why, why wouldn't... You know, they, they allow an out-of, you know, out-of-country, you know, someone that's not a native, shoot, shoot a wolf. And, and the great question, you know, we, we do the same here for, for our coyotes, keeping them in check. Uh, but it all boils down to 
what are their numbers? Uh, and the biologists up there uh, have not given them or given us the green light to do that. And it would be another avenue for Saskatchewan to generate some cash flow. You know, you could buy a wolf tag for 150 bucks uh, and, and, and take one, but that's just not part of it. Um, I, I know that I hear wolves every day. I know they're there. There's no question. I've only seen them uh, three different times, but they're as elusive as anything that there is out there in the woods. But you hear them every day, no doubt. I bet that's something to hear. It is. It's not like coyotes. You can tell the difference <laughs> when you hear that big wolf light off, and then uh, there's no mistaking what you're listening to. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it, I for me, I would. Yeah, that would definitely be something I would be interested in if I was in the area. But uh, I do get it that if if the numbers aren't you know to where they've okayed it, then I'm guessing it's a population. You know, somebody said that you know population level is still too low. We're not going to begin harvesting. Yeah, kind of like bears here. You know, you you have a bear in Mississippi every once in a while. I know they've thrown it around a time or two about maybe having a draw hunt or you can get a few tags per year but you know we've never seen it and not sure when we will and it may be something similar that the the population numbers just aren't sustainable yet to whatever factor they've come up with but yeah i I don't know what their ratio or their factor is but i know that there are uh they are plentiful they are they are everywhere and everyone uh can hear them every day whether they're a half a mile away or or even closer, for that matter. Now, they're, they're as afraid of humans uh, as as just about anything out there in the woods. Uh, so they're they're not a threat to to us, say, uh, as a person. Maybe in a pack. Maybe I, I could see that. But um, I've, I've just never heard any stories. Of course, we ask. You know, they're just not a threat to humans up there. When they see the humans or see the locals, then they're gone. You know, that that's what they're the guides tell us that. Now they live there and, and they would know. They're they're good woodsmen. Now can the local residents can they harvest anything other than whitetail or black bear? Yes. Okay. But still no wolves. Um they can do the moose or whatever it is. They're still on a tag system. Yes, they're still on a tag system. Um, but uh they can. They can take the elk and the white uh white tail, black bear, moose and um I, I would love to have the opportunity to go up there to harvest the moose. I did have a few moose come through my bait pile uh, over the years. I've seen a few of them, and that, that's the biggest animal I've ever seen in the woods. I mean, he was well over a thousand pounds. Looked I, like I a S ten. What he was? Wow. Looked like a S ten pickup truck coming through. That's a horse. He filled up my scope. <laughs> you know, I, I had a dive <laughs> my scope just blacked out. And I'm, what is that? And I pick my head up, and there he is. He's, he's every bit of fifty inches wide. And uh, just a, a beast of the forest. So you have laid crosshairs on one. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> in fact, I heard him. I heard him forty-five minutes before I saw him. That's how far away he was, and he's coming through the woods. That'll give you an idea of his size and, and what what he sounds like coming through the woods. And he was just walking. He wasn't running. He wasn't trying to make any noise. He just was because he's so big. And when he came through the bait pile, I'm assuming, you know, I'm, I'm leaned into my rifle in my stand and, and uh, hoping it's a giant uh, buck. 
And my, like I said, my, my scope blacks out and I lift up my head and there's a 50 inch plus moose standing there. And he's just, uh, wow. <laughs> he's incredible. He really is to see in person. I bet it would take him long to, uh, go through the bait pile. Yeah, if he stopped, he would eat the alfalfa that was there and then move on looking for something else. I'm sure. <laughs> That'd be a snack for him. <laughs> it would. It would. Well, you know, Russ, this year when I was in Newfoundland, uh, the local that we were up there with that I went up to visit with, uh, he was telling us that every other year the residents there get a moose tag and for meat. Uh, and what they do a lot of times, you know, they'll split a moose between two of them, and that way each year each one of them have fresh meat. And he was telling us oh. the numbers and how many they had and how small the island was. And the four days we were up there, now we were up there duck hunting. Uh, we were we were out in the Atlantic Ocean. But when we were inland, you know, I'm steadily looking for one. I'm like, I want to see one. You know, this is just – and he had told us that, you know, some friends of his still had tags left, and we might be able to accompany them on a hunt. And I'm like, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, even if it's not legal for me to shoot, I would love to go film the hunt. I mean, just to be yeah. in on it would be a, a fun adventure. We never not even once spotted one. Wow. And he's like, well, I guess they've moved back into the timber. They're not, he said, but normally they're right here beside the road. Cause we saw a moose alert sign, you know, I mean, you know, beware of moose, watch out for moose. The signs were everywhere, but we never, we never had the opportunity to see one. So I could, uh, that's, that's amazing that they, that you can't see them. And, and it's an animal that's that big, you know, they're, they're a thousand plus pounds. And I've only seen two and the, Ooh, uh, 13, yeah, 13 years that I've been going, I've only seen two moose and three wolves and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deer. But um, anyway, uh, it's just an, uh, an elusive giant animal. Well, Russ, on your, your, your clientele that, that comes up there, where, where, you know, throughout the United States, are they mainly coming from? Is it all over? Or it's all us, over. Or? Yeah, it's all over. We get a lot of folks from Florida, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, uh, Georgia. Some uh, some some uh, some consistent hunters from Minnesota. Um, they're just from all over. They are uh, because you know we we sell the hunts. All the, the the ten of us we we sell the hunts to to, to people and you know and they, then they talk about it to someone else and then they just. Uh, feeds itself you know so uh, we're constantly um getting calls from from all over the country about about the hunts because we are so much more affordable than say the competition down the road um i think that the local competition down the roads are they start around five thousand, and then on up um, if you want to get on the Indian reservations up there, they sell hunts as well. And I'm not sure, but I, I know they're beyond 5,000. Ours start at 3,500 uh, for a, for a week long hunt. Uh, of course, you've got your rental uh, of your vehicle on top of that and your tag. Your tag's uh, somewhere around 240, 250 American dollars uh, for a whitetail tag and somewhere around 180 to 200 dollars for a black bear tag and the black bear hunt is 2400 well how did let's backtrack real quick how did y'all ever get started with this uh dad uh he he always had 
uh, on his bucket list, wish list, whatever you want to call it, about going and hunting all the uh, hunting the big the big Canadian whitetail up in Canada. And his first few years of going with some outfitters um, were, <laughs> were 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 hilarious uh, to put it. You know, he got hooked up with some guys who weren't as reputable as maybe some others and put him on some some hunts that were um uh, maybe a farce that you might call him <laughs> i don't know but he didn't have the right gear he was hunting in jeans like we did down here in the south of course this is back <laughs> in the in the in the late 70s early 80s you know this is a long time ago uh before all the great equipment has come out that you yeah know, probably like a, under armor or raven aware have come out with probably a pair of carhartt coveralls was yeah, probably the best right. best gear out there at that time his butt off <laughs> So anyway, that's where it all began with dad, uh, and his, his buddies, um, having uh, a desire to go up there and hunt the big boys, hunt, hunt all the big white tails in Canada. That's where it started. I, was I mean, 87,000 you... acres. That's a, uh, that's about that's 300 pretty, square miles. That's a pretty yeah. good spread. It is. And I don't know that we can hunt it effectively. Not all of it. We'll never hunt it all effectively. Of course, when you're driving, you know, the guides are taking you out there to hunt and then bringing you back. And if you're going to the other end of those 86,000 acres, that's a long day. That's a really long day. Because we go in at dark uh, in the mornings and come out at dark in the evenings. It's an all-day sit. Uh, unless you don't want to, you don't have to, of course, you got your, your cell phone and if need be, we can supply you with one up there. Uh, so if you ever wanted to come out of the woods and that's fine, that's perfectly fine. Uh, and not a lot of people, you know, not everybody wants to sit all day, but I'm afraid I'm going to miss that, uh, nomadic, um, giant whitetail, the weirdos that come through at odd hours of the day, you know, I, I so I'm going to sit all day. I'm going to do it dark to dark. And, um, you know, I've, I've killed most of the biggest deer I've ever killed around one o'clock in the afternoon. It's, it's the strangest thing. I always thought it would be first thing in the morning or, you know, that, that, uh, twilight time there at dusk when it's magic hour and, um, that we're all aware of down here in the South, but it's been in the early afternoon when I've seen the, the biggest bucks that I've ever seen. How is it, you know, you think about, you know, hunting pressure, you know, here in Mississippi. Is hunting pressure, you know, is it pressured like like up there like it is here? Not at all. Not at all. Um, they are uh, a much calmer deer up there, I find. Whereas you, we all know how nervous the, that white-tailed uh, doe is down here in the south. You just don't have the numbers of people up there. Uh, so like, say, in the Hudson Bay area where the population is, I don't know, 3,500 people, something like that. And, I mean, forest and forest and forest that, 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 you know, men have never walked in or hadn't been there in 100 years, you know. So they don't see the pressure that, that they see down here in the south. Um, they, they're pressured more by their, by their um, you know, the wolves or... Um, other things like that so they just don't see the pressure that they see down here in the south you mean to tell me they don't have the gravel popping that we do around here 
<laughs> you know, you, you no, watch you no. watch a whitetail around here right before deer season, and they're just kind of lulling around, gently walking yeah. through, easing through places. And then once that gravel starts popping about mid-bow season, everybody's in the woods <laughs> more, and all of a sudden they are flighty uh, coming in at midnight on your game camera. You never see That's them in right. the daylight. Like, yeah, they know what time of year it is. They absolutely – I think they have a calendar and a, and a watch on at that time of the year around here. Um, but, they, you know, we, we do – we have game tracker cameras out there at every stand. And, um, you know, typically you're going to see the uh, the bigger deer uh, like you would around here at nighttime come in and feed. And then the only time they're really going to make a mistake up there is around that rut time, which is um, Thanksgiving. Um, that's a Thanksgiving. I've never hunted the Thanksgiving week. I don't know if I can, I don't think I could pull that off. My wife wouldn't, wouldn't have that, but I want to be, I I wouldn't want to be here with the family anyway, but, uh, that, that is absolutely the prime time of their rut up there is Thanksgiving week. Well, Russ, that may be the prime time to take the family. I, you know, my wife wouldn't go up there if I paid her <laughs> to go. There's nowhere to shop. You know, it's as rural as it gets. Uh, there's two restaurants in town, probably owned by the same people. And there's a um, a warehouser and a, uh, a co-op. And that's that, oh, there's a subway there too. Yeah, that, that's about it. That's about it. Is there a dollar You're rural? Is there a Dollar General there yet? There is not. Just there give it not. time. <laughs> Just give it time. It will. If yeah. it's a rural place, it'll be there before long. Uh, <laughs> I've told, said it more than once. I wish I had bought stock in that uh, years ago Thank because, you. Lord help, they they have put them up everywhere and anywhere you could think of. Everywhere. Yeah. There's you, there's you another opportunity, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It actually is. Yeah. Well, Russ, walk walk us through this now. You you were saying when your dad first started up there that, uh, you know, his gear was not, you know, not what it needed to be. And I'm guessing from what you were saying earlier, you know, you've got folks from all over the country. And, and I would guess from all over the world. Do y'all get many people from other countries? Other uh, no, I, I don't know of any that have come from any other countries. Um, now, they could have over the years, and I'm just not aware of it. Um, but as long, as far as I know, then it's all been, uh, continental U S hunters going up there. But to answer your question about the, the, what to wear, you know, dad started off wearing Carhartt and things of that nature up there. And so did a lot of the other hunters who just weren't aware or, or didn't know how to hunt up there in that cold, because coming from the South, we're, we're not familiar with any of that stuff. We can, we can hunt in the, in the water and the, in the wet season, we know how to do that. But, you know, these sub-zero temperatures up there is a different ball game. Um, so um, Dad happens to have uh, a product called Ravenware, which is made uh, in Canada. And you can find that uh, online um, at ravenware.com. And they, they get your size and uh, they, they outfit you with uh, bibs uh, and a parka and uh, gloves and something else comes with the package that they sell, but it's arguably some of the, the best stuff that there is out there. I think that's top shelf stuff right there. And, and you're going to pay for it. It's a little expensive. Um, it's over, it's going to be over twelve, fifteen hundred dollars something like that for a setup like that. But you can also go to, um, 
oh, uh, I've got Extreme Stand Hunter by Cabela's is what I what I wear. Again, bibs uh, and, a, and a parka, and it comes with um, a hand warmer that fits into the jacket, and uh, it's extremely comfortable. I'm never, ever cold. Uh, a big problem for us up there was our feet. Uh, how do you keep your feet warm? Because you're not moving all day. Yeah, you don't feet, have a lot of feet, blood hands, circulation. And head. Uh, so what we did was over the years we learned that you know your feet. Uh, oh, and cotton is off limits. You don't want cotton on your body up there at all. Don't don't want any form of cotton, uh, especially on your feet. So what we did was take a lot like boot blankets. Everybody knows what boot blankets are. They mm-hmm. go over the top of your boots and they help you keep warm. Throw a hot hand in there. But we we've lined those boot blankets with some fur and you take your boots off when you get to stand, put those boot blankets on and drop a, uh, a three by five hot hand in there, man, you're toast all day. So the issue of the cold feet are gone. And that's only been in the past couple of years. Um, I bought dad some thermocell uh, insoles, inserts that have a remote control switch uh, to get hot or to turn them off and, um, he forgot them this past year, so we don't know if they work or not. I, I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't vouch for those yet. <laughs> but the hot hands are arguably one of the best inventions hunters have have, have ever come up with uh, for hunting in cold weather climates. No doubt about it. What about say firearms? Firearms. Um, a lot of guys will carry a seven mag. Uh, I happen to shoot a. Uh, a 300 short mag, uh, and I would say the majority of them carry the 300 mag, which is more than enough gun that you'll need either for uh, whitetail or black bear. That's that's more than enough. And most of your shots are going to be uh, around 100 to 120 yards. We've got a couple of stands that are around 150, uh, but most of your shots are going to be in that 100 to 100 yards for your whitetail. Now, for black bear, they're going to be anywhere from 50 to 80 yards, something like that. A black bear's uh, probably the hardest animal to judge that I've ever hunted, whether it's a, a, a large or a sub-adult. Um, it just takes a little time. And some key key uh, items that you're checking is uh, their ears. How pronounced do their ears look on their head? The smaller they look on their head, the bigger the bear. The belly. The belly is the belly near the ground. Uh, and we have barrels out there, and they're full of donuts and syrup or whatever whatever else they can shove into those barrels. But if the, if the bear's back is as tall or taller than that 50-gallon drum, then that's probably a, a, a pretty decent bear. Um, but his, you know, uh, my experience tells me that when when a big black bear comes in, there's no doubt about it. There, <laughs> there's no question. And that's the quietest animal I've ever heard in the woods, ever. Be silent. And you would think something that large would make a pile of noise. You would. You would think that. But, but they're ghosts. They really are. Well, well uh, and I'm glad you answered it because I was going to ask, you know, do you have a mark on a tree that, you know, if they stand up, mm-hmm. if he's this tall, this is a good one. If not, because um, I yeah, wouldn't, I, I would probably be excited about seeing a cub. Right, right. A lot you know, of people Especially aren't. your first yeah, one, first you're looking time, at it. First and, time any of us here in the South would see a bear, you know, odds are. 
but the barrel is a great indicator. You know, that 50-gallon drum is is a really good marker for telling you whether it's a good bear or not. Well, and you well, could Russ, say I, I, I got a question kind of talking sure. about, you know, a trophy. You know, if you kill, you know, the, the trophy whitetail up there, what's the process that, you know, say me from Mississippi would have to go through as far as getting that back home with me? Great question. Um, typically, uh, we donate the meat uh, to to locals who need it. Uh, for um, you know, people will come by and just pick up the meat. Our guides will call uh, people in town who could use it. You know, uh, and that's what we do with the meat. The getting the meat back is too difficult uh, to get it through customs. It is uh, if you go through Toronto, odds are you're not going to get back get it back. So. Um, it's too difficult to do that. So we recommend that you don't. Now, as far as getting the cape back and the horns back, um, again, I recommend that people don't go through Toronto. It's just too hard to get through customs with something like that. Um, but you, you know, the guides will, uh, you know, skin the animal and, and cape it out for you, shoulder mount or whatever you, whatever you want done and, uh, remove the horns. And then, We'll go to the local co-op and get us a big plastic bin uh, and put uh, and they'll they'll freeze the uh, the cape overnight too and then put that horn and the cape in that big plastic plastic bin, duct tape it up really good. Uh, you know all your information goes on that uh, on that um, plastic bin, and then uh, United Airlines is very good about uh, allowing you to. Uh, move those things back into the u.s it does cost you a little bit so i think it's about 150 bucks to get get that uh back across into the u.s and the customs there is uh, uh much more understandable to hunters um uh, going through places like minneapolis st paul uh they understand that we're going to come back with hunter you know with with uh, possible horns and with cape and as long as we're doing it the proper way and you got the proper paperwork uh, and then your paperwork would be your license that you bought up there. Uh, and, of course, the, the horns will have the tag on it. Uh, and as long as you've got that, then you're good to go. It's, it's, it's not a hard process. And then take it back down here to your local taxidermer, uh, taxidermy and um, allow him to do his work. Uh, and it'd be important, too, to let your taxidermist know, uh, you know, this is a North American. Uh, this is the North American Canadian deer. You're going to need a bigger uh, form for this animal. There's no question about it. You're going to need a bigger form, and they make those. And I'm sure a lot of people are aware of that too. Yeah, you take a 300 plus pound animal to a 180 pound whitetail yeah. around here. You're going to need a little bigger. You'd have it'll a... look on. <laughs> <laughs> it'll look like a charpay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you could you could see that being off just a little bit, just a little. Yeah. Have y'all? We were talking about equipment a minute ago. Have you ever had any problems with scopes freezing up in that negative thirty degree weather or or cold cold weather? I have not, but uh, when I get in at night, um, I'll um, I'll I'll clean my scope up with uh, some 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 no fog or some anti fog something uh every night and a lot of guys will if they're going to hunt one stand 
Uh, you know, if they've got a if they got a deer coming in on this particular stand, a lot of guys will leave that uh, that weapon in that box if they're hunting a box. They'll leave it in there so that it does acclimate. Uh, but I've never had that issue. I've never had a problem where uh, it froze up to the point where it was not usable. Now I've cleaned ice off of my scope, front end, back, um, but I've never had a problem where I couldn't I well, couldn't deal with it. I know a good friend of mine up north, and he, uh, you know, one of his things he he said is a lot of times they leave their guns outside if it's going to be extremely cold. And that way, that way it is acclimated. You're not taking that out of a 75 degree inside building and putting it out you know you just don't have quite as much the fogging or i guess the the temperature change on the gas inside the scope um maybe maybe and you don't want your you don't want any condensation building up around the, the firing pin either and when it goes mm-hmm. outside then it freezes up so yeah leaving it outside is probably a a good idea um in, in my experience just didn't know you know from being down here you know if, if we're hunting in 20 degrees we're freezing to death and we are you know your, your equipment might <laughs> not be the same that you need in negative 20 and that is that negative 20 celsius or fahrenheit that's fahrenheit because see a couple of years ago when i went to canada the guy was telling me it was going to be zero degrees or negative two and i'm like it's going to be what because he was telling us we were going to have to kayak in to where we were going i'm like how, how are you going to kayak in in negative two and he's like that's celsius so I had yeah. to learn the conversion. <laughs> like, okay, we we're, were about twenty eight, twenty nine degrees Fahrenheit. That's, that's not, right. That's not that's too right. bad. Uh, but the first time he threw that out there, I was I was kind of taken aback. You know, like, oh, what have I gotten myself into? You know, he's talking about taking a kayak. Are we putting <laughs> you don't wheels want to go on? Kayaking it? in zero? Yeah, are we rolling three. it across <laughs> the ice? How are we doing this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll be part of that. Now, Russ, would you would you suggest that if uh, say Jacob come up there, would you suggest him wear his short pants and rubber boots while he's hunting up there? Only Jacob, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I would I would strongly recommend that. <laughs> Is that because yeah. we'd probably never see him again if he did that? Or that's a strong possibility. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to tell y'all, I've been in some very cold weather in my shorts and rubber boots, so it, it's all right. I told the guy this year it was, I forgot, it was like 18 when we landed at the airport. And he's like, you're not going to wear your shorts and rubber boots, are you? I'm like, yeah, I will at least get off the airplane. First off, I have fun walking through the airport with my shorts and rubber boots on because there's plenty of weird looks that happen between people. I've been asked to take pictures with people. They're like, sure. You know, let's let's look at this weird weird guy and uh, see if we can get a photo opportunity here. I have fun with it, so it it doesn't really matter. But I told him I I would at least get off airplane. Now I may run out to the car and put clothes on when I get there, but I'm going to at least get off. But I wore them pretty well every time we weren't duck hunting. I mean, if we were, and it, I wore them, just slid my waders over them and took off. I mean, it really wasn't much colder there than it was here at the time, so it wasn't. Right. I've been in the teens. I've been actually down in single digits with shorts and waders on before and been quite comfortable. <laughs> it's it's okay. You weren't there long. I uh, no, we made pretty good, you know, couple-hour hunts. Uh, Is that right? Oh, yeah. It, it's okay. Woo. I actually sent uh, – Jeremy, what was the name of that company we got waders from a couple years ago? Uh, that was some of those uh, Gator waders. Gator had a product out, an insulated waiter. 
and I was comfortable in them. I actually sent them a picture wow. with my, my waders wow. pulled down where you could see my shorts and my legs and, and sent them a picture and said, you know, if you if anybody questions your your insulation, it works pretty well in eight-degree weather. Wow. As, as, well, as well as them questioning mental health. So. I, don't think, yeah. I don't think they were questioning. I think they were pretty positive that uh, it was lacking. <laughs> <laughs> There's a picture of that somewhere with a caption under it says something about mental health. Well, because the rest of me is completely. I mean, I'm I've got on two inches of jackets and gloves and head mask and everything else, but my my legs for right. some reason just don't seem to get that cold. I I can't explain it. It just it works that way. But now, Russ, you know, for everybody listening, now you've been. This is not your first interview. This is not. No. You know, you you've no. done a really good job with us today and. You know, kind of walk us back to how you got started hunting and, and you know, in, out sure. in, give us a little background here. All right. Um, uh, I, I grew up, well, was born in Oxford, Mississippi, and um, my father and uh, mother, uh, Russell Blair and Linda Blair, and they, they divorced when we were, uh, I think I was 12 or 13, something like that. My mother remarried to uh, Paul Ott who everybody in Mississippi knows. Uh, and we moved down to Macomb when I was 13 in 1983. And, uh, of course, Dad and I had always hunted and fished uh, all over Oxford and Mississippi, for that matter, uh, all of our all of my life with him up until 13. And then, um, uh, and then I was exposed to, to Paul. Paul was another father figure in my life that uh, – uh, had the hunting and fishing show listen to the eagle and um and of course we we hunted and fished uh down here in the south uh, uh south mississippi uh up until um gosh uh, we never stopped uh, to be honest you know so uh and then like i said dad back in 80 early 80s dad started going up to russell started going up to uh canada and um, I didn't start going up there uh, until 2007. It was my first experience up there in in, uh, in Canada. So I was very familiar with hunting down here and fishing down here in, in South Mississippi and um, other places in the South. But uh, so – and, and – to answer your question about my first interview, no, uh, we did uh, we did a lot of this talking about uh, the awareness of, of, of what we do up there in Canada on the Listen to the Eagle show. Uh, either I would host the show and um, have a guest on and we'd talk about it, and or Bert would be, my, my younger brother Bert would be hosting the show, or Paul would be, and they'd call me and we'd talk about it for, for a while. And um, Anyway, that's that's where uh that's what my background was and hunting and fishing and of course we're still doing it today i don't get to hunt and fish a lot here in the south in mississippi now uh, but i do look forward to my time up there uh, in canada it's like going back in time things are are still very very simple up there there's nothing but farming whether it be in the ground or the provincial forest for the trees um, the people are simple, uh, and well, a lot like they are down here in the South, uh, very kind and, uh, welcoming. Um, so it's, it's, uh, a heck of an experience 
uh, to get to go up there and do that. And I feel very fortunate to, to be to be able to go do that every year uh, until, well, I'm, I'm going to go until I can't go anymore. So, well, Russ, since you say that, I would say that is a very – to me, you, your your depiction there is a very very accurate one because every time I've been, it's almost like I've gotten a, had an opportunity to step back in time. That's you, right. You kind of step away from civilization. You time seems to slow down. You're you're you know you see folks they're they're steadily working they're they're hard diligent people but they're they're not so much working to earn a dollar they're working splitting firewood getting ready for winter they're they're putting meat right. up they're canning meat they're uh, the guy this year when we were up there he was talking about getting me a jar of pickled moose meat and i'm like y'all did what with it now <laughs> but they had boiled it down and and whatever process they did then they went up jarring it like we would a jelly or preserve and he he had a whole stock room that was full of pickled meat of different types, fish, different things to help them be able to get through a winter. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to run over to the grocery store if I need something fresh. Or That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah. it was, it, it's, it's just an extraordinary place to go. And, and some of the, if you're into nature, you know, you want to see some of the most beautiful sights you'll ever see. It's just hard to explain to someone who's never seen it. I, I would always highly recommend go see it. Oh, absolutely. And what I meant by being a simpler, you know, a simple people up there, it was, was just that, you know, they're, they're fending for themselves. They're cutting the firewood themselves. They're, they're not going to the grocery store. They're butchering their own meat. They have their root cellar full of uh, accommodations to make it through that winter. Uh, tough winters, sub-zero temperatures, minus 30s, uh, and steep, deep snow, deep snow. Uh, so there's not a whole lot of getting out and running around and uh, going to Piggly Wiggly or wherever it is that they need to go. That's not happening. They're um, they're doing it like the people who we, we see uh, on these TV shows that they're living off the grid. You know, that's just still uh, a very common way of life up there in that uh, northern uh, Saskatchewan areas. And I'm sure uh, in the other provinces as well. That's just uh, still how they do things. Well, and as you said earlier, you know, there's areas up there, even on y'all's lease, you know, that that man probably hasn't seen in 100 years, if ever. Uh, Correct. You know, uh, the area we were in this past year, you could get a mile off the road and take a backpack with a tent, and you could go in uncharted territory where no one had been in years and years, and... Oh, that's right up my alley. I told my wife I could I could easily move up there for a couple months. I don't know if I want to be up there when they're having, you know, 15, 20 foot of snow. Uh, not really my cup of tea there. That's not short weather. But, you know, if you get up there, <laughs> went, went from June to November, maybe so. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's it's beautiful. Hey, we think we have mosquitoes down here. We think we do. Brother, they got them in the springtime up there in northern Saskatchewan in that provincial forest. Oh really? Gosh. Oh, gosh. If you don't have a thermocell, if you don't go in the woods with a thermocell, that's a black bear hunt type of time. If you don't go in there with a thermocell, you're in trouble. I mean, I'm telling you, you got to have. I would have never guessed. Right? Me either. We didn't go up there prepared, but we hunted uh, one day. 
my dad and I hunted one day in 2007, and we went to the co-op that night. And we bought us a couple of thermocells because we already had the, the the head mask and the hand, you know, the gloves and and all that other stuff. That didn't matter. They didn't care. They came right on through that. So we went and got us a thermocell, and surprising to us, we thought that it would it would scare off the bears because of the odor, but they didn't care. They, they really didn't care, but it formed a bubble around us, and you could still hear the mosquitoes outside that bubble. Oh, they sound like uh, a Huey helicopter. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and it was uh, unbelievable the amount of mosquitoes they have up there. Unbelievable. Well, and Russ, I never thought about it until I worked up there out of college. We worked in Minnesota a good bit, and when you have the snow melt on those big flat areas it leaves so many pools of stagnant water that they just they thrive you know you think down here in the south you know they're bad and and it was uh you know when we first got up there told us you know make sure you take plenty of off with you and plenty of bug spray Mm -hmm. and it was like we're in minnesota they're like yeah trust me you're gonna want it came in that evening i looked like i you know you could have read braille all over me and it was like hmm, yeah, let's play connect the dots yeah i will go get exactly a can this evening like. so it was uh it was definitely an eye-open experience and it's it's just neat the different conditions that you can run into you know it is you hardly is. ever see snakes we see snakes down here all the time but you have mosquitoes Just galore so it's just uh yeah you're not gonna see any snakes up there in in, in canada where we are They'll, all they have is uh garter snakes that's it they don't have any poisonous snakes, but, but they do have wolves and bears, <laughs> different and cougars <laughs> and cougars, uh, which I, I forgot to mention a little while ago. They do have cougars. We caught one on camera one night, and um, wow, he was. I'm going to guess and say he was 150 pounds, 150 ish, somewhere in there. He was a big animal. He really was of nothing but mean. That's all. A killing machine. A killing That's machine. A predator looking for some little juicy prey that we would be. Yeah, dad calls them land sharks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they are. <laughs> well, I've got a buddy that is scared to death of sharks, so if we make it up there, do not tell him that's what y'all call it. Because Will not. He, uh, he gets real nervous <laughs> on airplanes going over nothing but land. He's like, man, if this plane goes down, what are we going to do about the sharks? Like, if the plane goes down, I think the sharks are the least of our concern. Absolutely they are, yeah. <laughs> well, Russ, look, man, uh, we, are, we are coming to the end of this. Yep. We appreciate you coming on here greatly, man, and and, and telling and your Russ, story. Russ, tell everybody again how they can get in touch with y'all, you know, how they can find more information out about y'all's, y'all's uh, outfitter. Yes. Um, again, Whitetail International is the name of the company, uh, and it's Whitetail, I-N-T-L, all lowercase. That's Whitetail, I-N-T-L, dot com. Uh, and it's a very informative um uh, website uh, about what to bring photos of things uh, deer taken in the past we had a guy this past year killed 8.169 inches so it, wow. that's the kind of animal that you can you, you can find up there um uh, you can call me i'm happy to, to to answer any questions you might have my number is 601-324-9823 so i'm happy to answer any questions that you might have whether it be about the bear hunt or the the whitetail hunt, what to wear, what what not to bring, uh, what to expect, what kind of finances uh, it's going to cost you for everything. So 
welcome. I welcome all those calls, please. Well, Russ, we appreciate it, man. Thanks for thanks for catching up with us today, and uh, and everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Outdoor Country Talk with Jake and Jerry. God bless. God bless. Man. Ain't nothing like a southern air Lord, to make you feel alright I got the windows down I got the radio on